I'm here this morning actually uh, with fear and trembling. I'm excited and I'm nervous. I told you last week when I talked to you about Esther that, that was, this was the finale of the last sermon on spiritual authority, but hey, what do I know? I'm just the deputy around here. I am not in charge. Friday afternoon, I had my sermon written. I had all my scriptures. I had my PowerPoints done and everything. And then I went to the evening session, and God's like, hmm, nope, here, we're going to change this completely. I'm like, yes, sir. I actually got a prophecy for a couple of kids from a different church, and then I realized, oh, this is for, this is for Sunday. So what do I know? I don't know anything. I just, I just take orders as best I know how to do. So I'm really excited for you this morning because I, I, the Lord told me a whole bunch of you are going to find out what your destiny is this morning, you, the purpose for what you were created. Some of you are going to leave angry. Uh, some of you are going to leave scared. Some of you are going to leave really excited, and it's not a few of you. It's a lot of you are going to find an answer to why do I exist, why am I here, what's my purpose and call in God. Nehemiah 1, I talked to you about Esther last week, told you that that was uh, the end of the Old Testament period, just 400 years before Jesus. The books of Nehemiah and Ezra happen about 20 years later. They are the very last Old Testament uh, books in the history of the Israelites that we have. And so Nehemiah is dealing with the next king. Esther was married to Xerxes. Nehemiah is dealing with Xerxes' son, whose name is Artaxerxes. He's not Esther's son. Uh, he was born, he was probably actually older than Esther. Uh, he was probably born during his grandfather's reign, Darius. Uh, Nehemiah is in Persia, in Iran, but he is an Israelite. And he is inquiring about his people back in Jerusalem who have gotten to go home after they've been held hostage for 70 years. And this is the context of what we're reading. We're going to read Nehemiah 1. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah, it came to pass in the month of Chislev in the 20th year as I was in Sushan the citadel. That means the capital city of Persia was Susa. And Hanani, one of my brethren, came with men from Judah, and I asked them concerning the Jews who had escaped, who had survived the captivity, and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, The survivors who are left from the captivity in the province are there in great distress and reproach. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down, and its gates are burned with fire. And so it was when I heard these words that I sat down and wept, and I mourned for many days. I was fasting and praying before the God of heaven. And I said, I pray, Lord, God of heaven, O great and awesome God, you who keep your covenant and mercy with those who love you and observe your commandments, please let your ear be attentive and your eyes be open that you may hear the prayer of your servant, which I pray before you now, day and night, for the children of Israel, your servants, and confess the sins of the children of Israel, which we have sinned against you. Both my father's house and I have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, nor the ordinances which you commanded your servant Moses. Remember, I pray, the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though some of you were cast out to the farthest part of the heavens, yet I will gather them from there, and I will bring them to the place which I have chosen as a dwelling for my name. Now these are your servants and your people whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. O Lord, I pray, please let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant, to the prayer of your servants who desire to fear your name. And let your servant prosper this day, and I pray, and I grant him the mercy in the sight of this man, for I was the king's cupbearer. Nehemiah is living hundreds, 
of miles, perhaps more than a thousand miles away, in Susa, in what is today Iran, and he's inquiring about the state of the Jews that have moved back to Jerusalem. The city had been destroyed a hundred years earlier, more than a hundred years earlier, by Nebuchadnezzar. The walls had been broken down and the gates had been burned, and the Israelites had moved back home, but they had not been able to rebuild their city, and they were living in poverty, in rubble, defenseless, walls broken down, gates burned, he said, in great shame and reproach, great distress and reproach was the report. And it breaks his heart, and he weeps, and he fasts, and he calls on the name of the Lord. And do you hear his representative intercession there? Like I talked to you about Daniel and Jesus and and Moses, and here it is again. God, I and my fathers have sinned. Nehemiah had nothing to do with why God had punished the Israelites and hauled them off. Nehemiah wasn't even born. I am guilty with my nation. Do you hear it? So this king that he is the cupbearer to is, is Artaxerxes, Xerxes' son. And you know who Xerxes is from last week, Esther's husband. He is the cupbearer to the king. It's his job to die first if somebody poisons the king. The cupbearer was the most trusted man in the kingdom besides the bodyguards. Every time the king ate or drank anything, the cupbearer's job was to eat it and drink it first, and then the king would wait. If you don't drop dead, I'll eat and drink. That's Nehemiah's job, is to die for his king. It is the sole reason he exists. This guy is obviously a faithful and trustworthy man. But his heart is not there in the palace to live in luxury and riches and be in the king's court. He obviously honors his king, but his heart is back home in Jerusalem where he has never been. Except that it's my people. Doesn't affect his world. He's in the 1%. But those are my people. That's my city. He's never been there. But his heart is broken for it. Because this is the city of my fathers and the city of my God. This is my people. There is a group of people. And Nehemiah says, they're my people. And their walls are broken down and their gates are burned. They've been attacked and they've been left broken and damaged and defenseless. Maybe there is a group of people that's in your heart that you care about. And you care about their distressed situation. And maybe you're a part of that group or maybe you're not. Maybe it's just a group that you desire to minister to and serve and set free. Maybe it's something you've been through and God has restored you from it. Or maybe it's a part of who you are now. I don't know, but there's a group of people somewhere who has moved your heart. There's a burden on your heart that breaks your heart. And maybe that is abortion. Maybe it's unborn babies that are being cut up in the womb. Maybe the issue of your heart is racial reconciliation. Maybe it's autism and disabled people. Maybe it's sin in the church, a defenseless 
church with its walls broken and its gates burned and that breaks your heart, it disturbs you. That the church is living in unholiness and distress. Maybe the issue of your heart is revival or it's orphans and foster children and that moves you for their distress. Are you following me? Nehemiah's heart was for the people of Jerusalem. Maybe yours is for the fatherless or for the elderly or the addicts and the recoverers. That's just your people. It's who you care about. It's who attracts your heart. It's who breaks your heart. Hello? Maybe it's prostitutes, the trafficked. Maybe it's people trapped in or have chosen sexual perversions of any number of sorts. Maybe it's the homeless. Maybe it's crime in our city is the burden of your heart, and how can we change that? And maybe it's veterans. Maybe it's reform in the church or reform in the medical system or reform in the government or the military. Maybe it's the persecuted church that is on your heart all the time, constantly thinking about believers in Vietnam and North Korea and China and Iran and Afghanistan. Maybe it's just evangelism in general that moves your heart. You're constantly thinking about the people who are lost and don't know Jesus and, and that breaks your heart and moves you. Maybe it's a particular nation or an ethnic group. I have a, I have a mission in my heart for that people. Maybe it's our schools that move you. Maybe it's a generation of kids growing up lost in an immoral world. Maybe it's the salvation of your own family. You're the only one, and you pray for your brothers and sisters and kids and grandkids and grandmas and grandpas and parents and, and constantly moved for the salvation of your family. And like Nehemiah, our response is, i got to pray about this. I have to. It breaks my heart. It makes me weep. I'm going to let it break my heart, and I'm going to fast and weep and mourn. And not just in a sympathetic way, like I feel sorry for children in the foster system or I feel sorry for wounded veterans. No, I take responsibility for this situation. Yes. Nehemiah took responsibility in his own heart for the people back home in Jerusalem. I own this problem. These are my people. And I'm responsible to fix it. You're not going to God blaming anybody. Not blaming past generations. I and my nation are responsible for this situation. I don't go to God blaming anybody else. I take the blame for the situation and then I go to God and ask for forgiveness. God's ambassador between heaven and earth. You know all about it by now. I take it to God and ask forgiveness. I am just as guilty as the perpetrators. I go to God with his word and I remind him of his promises of salvation and I ask him to perform it. So in all of those examples I just used, and I know I didn't cover anywhere nearly all of them, and some of you may have those issues in your heart and some of you may have others, but I'm not talking about something, some issue that makes you angry. Anger is not the response of the Holy Spirit. There is a righteous anger, but it is very rare. You may be righteous in your anger once or twice in your life. Maybe. maybe. <laughs> I'm not talking about something that you see corruption in the government or injustice in society and makes you mad and you're going to go fight it. That's not what I'm talking about. Okay, I'm not talking about what you blame others for. 
those politicians and those addicts and those kids and those doctors and the things that, that you blame other people for. I'm not talking about identifying a problem and then thinking somebody should do something about that. We can all identify problems. And we can all think that somebody should do something about that. Nehemiah let his heart be broken for a group of people he didn't know. He wasn't a part of them. He could have lived his life in luxury in the palace. But these are my people. This is my nation. This is the house of my God that's in distress. You can go on living your life and never care about what's going on with Christians in concentration camps in North Korea and China. You just go right ahead and live your happy life. Don't feel guilty about that at all. I said you could. I'm not talking about something that moves you to sympathy. Well, I feel sorry for the widow down the street, and I feel sorry for the injured veteran, and I feel sorry for the victims of sexual abuse, and that's not, I'm not talking about that at all. I'm not talking about going out to change the world or make the world a better place. I'm not talking about something that moves you to fear. Well, we've got to fix this because I'm scared of that. I'm not talking about partisan political action. I'm not talking about some topic that you're interested in or you like to learn about or you think you're an expert in. You know, all the political arguments and all the statistics, Mark Twain said there are three kinds of lies. There's everyday lies and damned lies and statistics. <laughs> you start throwing numbers around, you are on hell's territory. I'll explain that in a moment. I'm not talking about what gets you on your high horse or your soapbox or your crusade. I'm talking about a situation that makes your heart so break that you fast and cry about it. That's what I'm talking about. What has made you so distressed you've lost your appetite? You have lost sleep. You can't concentrate at work. Nothing else matters because this is happening. And it may be somebody you know and care about or it may be a total stranger on the other side of the world. But you have fasted and wept about it. Not gotten mad, not gotten political, not spouted numbers, but you actually cared. Something that you care about so deeply that you have sustained over time heartbreak for the victims of X. Because I've been using the word issue and situation, but this is not, these are not issues and agendas. These are people. What I'm talking about and what moves the heart of God is not an issue, it is a group of people who are hurting who have been lied to, who are lost or trapped or poisoned or whatever it is, and I am moved to help them. This is not a political argument or a statistics fight. It's a group of people. When we fall into calling things social issues or political issues, we have fallen for Satan's trap. And people on both sides do it. You drive through Portland and you see the tents under all the freeway system downtown along the river. Some people drive through there and they are moved with human sympathy 
Like, this is a terrible problem. We have to control rent. We have to offer housing. We have to offer counseling. We have to do something about this. And other people drive through, these lazy, bum, drug addicts, they ought to be locked up. We need to do something about this. Everybody says, we need to do something about it. Very few people actually go and talk to the people. Sit with the homeless stoner on the sidewalk. And you will find that when you identify a group of people as a number or an issue or a problem, that is the definition of prejudice. To take a group of people, racial or economic or otherwise, and just say, well, they're all alike. You will find, if you go and talk to homeless people, some of them are victims of circumstances and economics, and they don't want to be homeless. A lot of them want to be homeless. They don't want to be free. It's not an issue to solve. It is a person to save. You can go to a website, and in cold black and white font, you can see the number that Oregon has 14,132 inmates in prison. And it's just a number. That is 14,000 people who are broken. And all, how many times lives they have destroyed. Their victims, their wives and girlfriends and children. That's like 100,000 people. Stories, lives, hearts, families. And again, on both sides of the issue, it becomes an issue, and it becomes political, and it becomes a social issue. Like, we need prison reform, and all these people and drug offenses need to be let go, and we need to change the laws, and we got prison overcrowding. And then the other people are like, build more prisons, lock them up, get them off the street. There are some that are truly wicked. There are some that are innocent, but both of those numbers are tiny. Mostly, they're just really stupid. They have made some terrible choices, and yeah, it wasn't an accident. They did it on purpose, but I, when I go to the prison in Pendleton, I was just there last week, and I, it's just heartbreaking to see the terrible situations, and these young guys are posing like they're so tough, and they're just idiot kids. And these old guys that you wondered, did you do it when you were old, or have you wasted your whole life in here? And you see some of them visiting family, and you see some really gross stuff, and just it breaks my heart for the people, for the stories. Hallmark Greeting Cards is in Kansas City, Missouri. So years ago in the 80s, they did a thing where they were going to give away free Mother's Day cards to every inmate in the Missouri penitentiary system that wanted one, and, and they ran out. They didn't print enough. So they weren't going to make that mistake on Father's Day, so they printed one for every inmate, and they put out the word, and not one inmate in the entire state wanted a free Father's Day card. Not one. These are boys that didn't have a dad, that beat their butt and taught them right and wrong, and showed them how to be a man. My dad is... The, an officer in a Christian Motorcycle Association chapter back home in Missouri, and they do prison ministry. Obviously, it's an event, and it's scheduled ahead of time. They get to ride their bikes into the yard, and the inmates get to come out and, and 
see the bikes and, and they share the gospel with them and they minister to them. And dad said one time there's, I don't know, 10 or 20 bikes out there and they're talking, but there's another guy who's joined with them. My dad said he didn't know him, but he said, this man was Goliath. He was six, six or seven pushing 400 pounds, long scraggly beard, wore blue and white striped bib overalls. You got this guy pictured in your head, a giant of a man in bib overalls. And this, he said, this guy, when it came his turn, he's a prison minister. And he grabs the mic and he doesn't preach. He doesn't read a Bible verse. He says, hi, my name is so-and-so. And I travel around to prisons all over the country. And I give hugs. <laughs> and dad said, I had to choke down a laugh. Like, what kind of ministry is that? Dad said he was the only one they lined up to see. Because by sheer size alone, this man becomes a little boy, and I need a father figure. And they, Dad said the line was two hours long. And these men, he's, almost every single one of them cried. Some of them put their face in his bib overalls and screamed. And this is what this man does, is goes and hugs inmates. Who need a hug? From a man. They're not a number. They're not a statistic on an Oregon government website. They're people that ought to break our hearts. Illegal immigration is the same way. Both sides turn it into numbers and issue. One side sees them all as victims of circumstance and they're just the huddling masses yearning to breathe free and we need to let them all in. And the other sees them all as drug traffickers and human traffickers and coyotes and we need to keep them all out. That's the definition of prejudice. There are some we should keep out and some we should let in. How about you talk to them and know them? And you learn the complexity and the nuances of the stories and the broken hearts. Get away from the political agendas and all the garbage online and love people. This vaccine debate that's raging now in Oregon with vaccines and schools and it's not an issue, folks. It's people's lives. Just this morning, I looked up how many people does this affect, and, and I did not go to an anti-vaxxer website. Just so you know, I got this number from, these numbers from the government, from the CDC. 11 kids have died since 2000 from the measles in the United States. 11 kids. 92 have died from the MMR vaccine at least that have been diagnosed. It's a real issue. And these are not numbers. This is 103 families whose kids have died. And they're being turned into political pawns and numbers. Hear their stories. Talk to them and listen. Eight and a half times more kids have died from the vaccine than the disease in the last 18 years. Listen to those people. It's not a number. So I'm talking about whatever it is that really, truly lights your fire and moves you and breaks your heart, not to make you angry, not to make you politically active, but that you actually care enough that this is something that I am willing to weep and fast for. This problem matters to me. These people in distress and reproach matter to me. 
Like Nehemiah, I could go on living my life or I can care about people that don't have to matter. Uh, so I'm talking about a situation that breaks your heart, that you care deeply enough that you have been heartbroken about it for a long time. A problem that you would be willing to pay a very high personal cost to help solve or to fill a need. A group of people you are willing to accept responsibility for. There's a lot of people in distress. There's a lot of issues and problems out there, and we can't care about them all, but you need to care about something. You need to lay down your life for something. Revival and righteousness in the church or to take care of foster kids or to solve somebody's distress and problem. Everybody's broken. Their walls are broken down and their gates are burned. Who are you going to fast and weep for? Is there a group of people you're willing to own? If nothing comes to mind, you aren't born again. I don't say that as a threat or a shock value. I really mean it. Because the Bible says, when Jesus comes into your heart, the love of God is shed abroad, which means it is cast into every area of your heart. And if you are not moved in brokenhearted love for people who are lost or in chains of some sort, you don't know Jesus. You're just a selfish person in the world living your own selfish life with your own time and money and schedule and reputation and agenda. I don't say that in, with any meanness. I'm inviting you to come and meet Jesus this morning. Even if you have attended this church for 20 years, you don't know Jesus if you don't care. Enough that you have wept and fasted, been moved to give time or money to help somebody. And I don't mean once eight years ago. It should be the continual state of your existence. Nehemiah 2. And it came to pass in the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was before him, that I took the wine and I gave it to the king. Now I had never been sad in his presence before. Therefore the king said to me, Why is your face sad, since you are not sick? This is nothing but sorrow of heart. So I became dreadfully afraid. And I said to the king, May the king live forever. Why should my face not be sad when the city, the place of my father's tombs, lies waste and its gates are burned with fire? Then the king said to me, What do you request? So I prayed to the God of heaven. And I said, <laughs> That's probably an understatement. This is my opportunity. This is my chance right here. God, move right now. And the king, and I said to the king, if it pleases the king and if your servant has found favor in your sight, I ask that you send me to Judah, to the city of my father's tombs, that I may rebuild it. Then the king said to me, the queen also sitting beside him, how long will your journey be and when will you return? So it pleased the king to send me and I set a time. Furthermore, I said to the king, if it pleases the king, let letters be given to me for the governors of the region beyond the river that they must permit me to pass through until I come to Judah. And a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that he must give me timber to make beams for the gates of the citadel that pertain to the temple, for the city wall and the house that I will occupy. And the king granted them to me according to the good hand of my God upon me. And I went to the governors in the region beyond the river and, they, and gave them the king's letters. Now the king had sent captains of the army and horsemen with me. Then Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite official heard of it, and they were deeply disturbed that a man had come to seek the well-being of the children of Israel. He gets his moment where the king says, What's on your heart, Nehemiah? And Nehemiah jumps at the opportunity and tells him, and the king gives him money, authority, soldiers, letters to other authorities, 
Go and do what's on your heart. There's always corrupt people who are benefiting from the system the way it is, and they will oppose anybody who wants to change it. Nehemiah's heart is back in Jerusalem. He's fasting and weeping and praying night and day, he says. And this went on for some period of time. And at some point, he's bringing the cup of wine to the king, and he can't. He's so distressed in his thoughts and in his prayers, he can't keep it off of his face. And the king notices. Nehemiah has a duty. He has a responsibility. He is under authority. Hello. I have to do my duty here. My heart is back home in Jerusalem, a city I've never been. People who are my kinsmen, but I I don't have anything to do with them. But I'm distressed. But I have a duty right here. What do I do? I have a job. I have people to take care of. Hello? Anybody feel that? I have a job and responsibilities here. He was under authority, and he faithful, faithfully served his authority that he was assigned, even though his heart was elsewhere. He did not leave his post. But his heart showed through. When you truly carry sustained, compassionate, heartbroken love for people in X situation. But over here I have my job and my bills and my kids and my home and my schedule and that. You will have to do both at the same time. Like Nehemiah. But eventually your authority will notice. Your boss, your pastor, your teacher, a government leader, whoever that is, and and God will notice. And you will be promoted. And he went from being the servant whose job it is to die to being the governor of Judah in three minutes. Hello, spiritual authority. The authority of what breaks your heart results in authority from God to do something about it. Because you've carried that burden long enough, God has tested you, and your earthly authorities have seen that you're faithful and trustworthy, you will get promoted. Nehemiah already was most trusted, for sure. You know, the most faithful people usually get the hardest and dirtiest jobs. You don't give the job of cupbearer and bodyguard to people you don't trust, especially Artaxerxes, because what I didn't tell you last week was Xerxes, Esther's husband, was assassinated by his bodyguard. There was the plot that Mordecai exposed and got um, rewarded for, but later, outside of the Bible, we know that Xerxes was assassinated by two of his bodyguards. So I guarantee you, Artaxerxes, his son, that's his number one concern, is who is standing beside me on the throne, and it's... It's a couple bodyguards, and it's Nehemiah. He's the one in charge of my food. Make sure it's not poisoned. I guarantee you, Nehemiah was one of the top, most trusted servants in the palace, in the world. The king picked this guy and gives him a very dangerous, bad job. Here, I pick you to drink my poison. The most faithful people very often get the dirtiest, lowest, crummiest jobs. But you prove that and you will get promoted. That'll work on the job and it'll work in church. It'll work in the kingdom with God. 
He goes from being servant to governor because he cared deeply, because he loved, because you fast and pray and weep, because you accept responsibility, because you intercede, because you own the problem and the solution. But while all of that is happening in your heart, you stay under your authority and you serve and you're responsible at work and at home and to pay your bills and you are faithful to perform whatever current duties you have. You prove your obedience and your faithfulness and your trustworthiness. You show that you're not a crusader who runs off in emotion. I have to fix the world. Seriously, there's a lot of people like that. Some fantasy that you're going to go solve all the world's problems, but you can't be counted on to be mature and thoughtful and patient and wise and thorough and calm and dependable. You didn't jump ahead of your leader and abandon your post in uncontrolled emotion about the cares of your own heart. When you do both of those, you carry that heartbreaking burden for this group of people that are in distress. But I stay faithful at work and at home. God will notice and your authority will notice and you will receive authority to go and fix the problem. You will be given a voice. You will be given a microphone. You will be given an outlet, a mandate. You'll get to testify before Congress or you will get to be the one who wins your mom and sister to the Lord. You will get to be the one who takes care of that adult child with autism or the foster child or who gets to go to the mission field or whatever it may be. You'll be given the resources and a wisdom and a message and a testimony, you will get promoted. God will give you authority. You will go from being servant to authority in a moment. If you know the rest of the story of Nehemiah, you know it will cost you dearly. You will be resisted, publicly lied about, opposed with lots of different strategies. You'll be attacked. You will have to do your work and defend yourself at the same time. You know, if you know Nehemiah, you know. They, had, they worked with a sword in one hand and a trowel in the other. Your enemies will try to turn your authority against you. Your enemies will bribe your allies to lie to you and rat you out. Some of the people that you think are on your side and working with you will actually be infiltrators who are working against you. This is the rest of the story of Nehemiah. But in all of that, God will be with you. He will bring many to help you do the work and fight the battles. And he will give you resources to affect that change, to solve the problem, to save the people you want to save. You will accomplish your mandate. You will achieve the goal. You will finish the work that God gives you. How many of you know what it is your heart is broken for? You know, if I had to narrow it down to one issue, sorry, not issue, group of people, I have to use the word issue because you think of it as an issue, but it's not. It's a group of people that are in distress. Their walls are broken down. They've been attacked. Their gates are burned. They're defenseless, and they need somebody to come and save them. Whatever that is, spiritually, emotionally, societally, physically. What has made you fast and pray and weep? That is your calling. That's your purpose. It's not your crusade. It is your calling. Prove yourself faithful to be the servant, and God will give you authority. Fast and weep and pray. Yes, you need to learn and think and come up with ideas and solutions and answers. But mostly, 
It's just fasting and weeping and praying where the solution is going to come from. Be patient and faithful to do the work you have until the Lord promotes you to authority to do something about it. And when he does, move quickly and decisively and boldly to bring freedom in that area, whether it's on your job or in your family or in your ministry, your mission that's in your heart, whatever it is. If your heart is not moved, your prayer needs to be, God, turn my heart on. My heart is hard and cold. I'm a good person myself, but I have lost concern, compassion. Turn on my heart and make me weep. Break my heart for what breaks yours. I'm sorry I've gotten busy and distracted and selfish with my time and money. I really want to be your agent of salvation. If you already know what that is, that is your calling, it is your purpose, it is your identity. It may not be your job. It may not even be your ministry at this moment, but as you walk in that, I have my life to take care of, my bills and job and responsibility and kids to raise, but I have this on my heart, and I want to be a part of the solution. I want to set these people free. I want to serve them and love them and bring answers and truth where there's lies and light where there's darkness. You carry that in your heart, God will promote you.